This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I, I can say there are a few things I care less about than this Oscars drama. Really? I'm delighted by it. I made it's everybody so mad at me on Twitter by tweeting that I care even less about the Oscars than I do about your Wordle score. Yeah. <laughs> For the record, I've been doing very well at Wordle. Oh my god! Uh, I will say this is the first the first Oscars I've watched in like maybe my whole life, certainly since I was a childhood, simply because I wanted to see the live performances. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno. That's literally the only reason I did it because that song is in my brain constantly on account of my toddler, and it was terrible. I thought that's what we were all going to be talking about today. That's what I want to talk about the Oscars about how bad a performance that was. But instead, some other stuff happened. So what are you going to do? That was the slap in the face, Lynn. <laughs> We all expected better from you. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, the man with the golden reason. Because we are here today, not just with my co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And I, the user of the royal we, am Scott R. Anderson, the other host. But we are here with the man with the golden reason himself, none other than Lawfare Editor-in-Chief, Benjamin Wittes. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted, but I have to confess I don't get the reference. What is the golden reason? It's from James Bond, a man with the golden gun. You've got the reason that kills with one shot, if I'm reading the N64 game correctly, because I'm not sure I've ever seen the movie. I will say, I don't get many of Scott's references, and usually I just roll with it and pretend that I do. That is the best way to do it. I didn't get the explanation in the like the N sixty four reference. The like every a- attempt to explain this, I've seen the man with the golden gun, but uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. There's a video game that Scott and I spent a lot of our twelfth year on this earth playing, probably at friends oh, the fourteenth friends perhaps. basements while eating candy. Uh, it was a exceptional James Bond shooter on the N sixty four console and there was this golden gun that if you could get you could kill any of your you know best friends who you're playing with with and that is a reference to a james bond movie from the 1970s called the man with the golden gun where he was an assassin he was hunting down yeah no i i've seen i've seen the man with the golden gun but i i have to say i do love the way you have transformed collectively this podcast into uh a uh, geriatric millennial nostalgia podcast, which I think is... I'm a young millennial, just to put it out there. But you're an old soul, Quinta, and that's (laughs) why we roped you into this enterprise. It it is not. I mean, calling yourself a young millennial, Quinta, you were like old when you were eight. (laughs) You have a book of yourself reading Marx as your Twitter profile. It's not not Marx. It's Revolt of the Masses. It's revolting. That's, that's right, not that's better. Right. That's that's not. Still. I don't. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't do what you think you're doing. Think you think it's, it's doing. a book of her as like 
a three-year-old. Yeah, I was not actually reading that book, to be clear. (laughs) Now I've punctured my mystique. We've crunched the numbers. We know our audience is entirely men between the ages of 33 to 39, and that's what we're going with. We're just hitting that demographic. God, I hope not. No, it can't be. It couldn't possibly be. I know your numbers better than you do, and you're not far off. <laughs> Ooh. Well, we love you, audience. We're glad you're here. What, whatever age you may be and whether you get my references or not, this is going to be a challenging one reference-wise. I'm going to warn you up front uh, based off some of the titles of our topics because we are here for the Slap in the Face edition um, because this has been a week of developments that have been shocking to some others. Messages of affront from one president to another, uh, from one committee to one former president and in all sorts of directions. And we are here to hash through some of these stories from the national security headlines with you today. Our first topic, you're changing my regime. What a wonderful way to say how much you hate me. In recent remarks in Europe, President Biden appeared to call for the removal of Russian President Vladimir Putin, a statement he later reframed as an expression of moral outrage, not a call for regime change. Was this a deliberate move or a slip up? And how significant is it? Topic two, and fans of 1970s popular soft rock music will be familiar with all of these titles as they've got a bit of a theme going. People, let me tell you about my best friend. Revelations about his wife, Virginia Thomas's role in the January 6th insurrection have raised questions whether Justice Clarence Thomas should be recusing himself from more cases before the Supreme Court, including a recent case governing rather whether records that might well implicate his wife should be turned over to the January 6th committee in which he was the sole dissenter. I just want to cut you off, Scott, because, yeah. you know, just don't make jokes about Jenny Thomas or you might get slapped. <laughs> fair, fair. It's coming. Should Justice Thomas be recusing and what should be done if he doesn't? Topic three. This one's a bit of a stretch. East Minden down. Load it up and fuck it. We're going to do what they say can't be done. <laughs> what is that <laughs> reference to? He's pounding down. Classic We're going song. for the explicit rating. Here. Come on, guys. You guys gotta get. You guys gotta dig into this back catalog on Spotify. <laughs> get your get your music cultural knowledge right up here. Uh, this is an all musical theme. 1970s. Paul Anka, the guy who does East Pound Down, whose name I can't remember. Classics. Anyway, topic three. Both a federal judge and a former New York prosecutor have concluded that there are credible reasons to believe former President Trump has broken the law, but it's unclear whether any local, state, or federal investigations are likely to lead to criminal charges. Will Trump be held accountable for his actions? For our first topic, Alan, I'm going to hand it over to you. So last week, uh, President Biden took a, a multi-day trip to uh, Europe to you know, rally allies in the continuing effort to help uh, Ukraine in its war against Russia. And at the end of that trip in Warsaw, Biden delivered some remarks. And uh, they, were, they were interesting throughout, but uh, all attention is being paid to a few key words. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, uh, the president said, referring, of course, to Vladimir Putin. Uh, and this, as uh, one can imagine, caused a lot of alarm, consternation, uh, just curiosity about what it is that President Biden meant and whether he really was calling for a regime change in Russia. Uh, The Kremlin uh, released a statement uh, that I thought uh, actually was quite restrained, calling uh, Biden's remarks, quote unquote, alarming. Uh, And in the the days since, uh, the White House has tried to uh, walk the the statement back that Biden made, saying that, uh, you know, what Biden meant when he said that that Putin can't remain in power was that he can't remain uh, in his current position of power that allows him to, you know, wage war on other European countries. But of course, no one is calling for a regime change in uh, Russia. 
The president, for his own part, has um, clarified his remarks, but in a sort of interesting way. He has said that he stands by uh, his argument that Putin is a you know, a morally bankrupt actor, um, but that his remarks were a personal denunciation of Vladimir Putin rather than an official uh, a statement of U.S. policy. Um, so I have lots of questions here. I have lots of thoughts. I think the idea of uh, Biden making a personal remark about the uh, a president of a, a rival state that is supposed to not represent U.S. policy is an interesting question of what exactly that means, given that the president is the commander in chief and the head of uh, U.S. foreign relations. But before we even get into that, um, it's pretty clear that uh, the Biden administration is trying to spin this as uh, a not calling, obviously, for a regime change in Russia. So let me start with you, Scott. Uh, how big of a deal is this gaffe? Um, is it just you know a funny thing that Uncle Joe said, or is it a big problem that uh, at some point, even if you walked it back, the president of the United States seemed to call for regime change in uh, a large nuclear superpower that is currently at war with Ukraine? You framed a question really well uh, there, because I think it is a question between this being a statement by Biden, the man expressing maybe a moral view, maybe a view that a lot of people would agree with as a citizen, as an observer, and then Biden, the president, making a statement of policy, particularly in a moment where the United States is leading a global effort to put massive pressure on Russia as a country and through it on Vladimir Putin himself to change their policy. We talked on this podcast before that like a lot of the policies that they're applying to Russia, particularly economic sanctions, really do kind of boil down to a soft effort at regime change. The idea is to build the internal pressure on Putin enough that he has to either change his policy mind or be changed uh, in terms of whether he's able to lead effectively, whether through being overruled by other officials, if that could happen in the Russian system, it's not really 100% clear if it can, or being removed potentially. That's the idea when you bring all the pressure on Russia as a state, that's how it gets transmitted back to Putin, is that threat of him actually losing power. So it's not a new idea. I think it's really notable, though, that Biden actually did come out and say this, whether he did it intentionally or not. Again, they are kind of trying to walk it back a little bit as a policy measure while standing by it as a statement of moral outrage, I think is how the White House has described it. As a policy measure, it's very significant because the next question is, in this broad policy the United States has been leading the effort on crafting, is when do we start ratcheting back some of these measures we've imposed on Russia to provide incentives for certain actions? When is it that we want to actually ease up sanctions and other measures to reward Russia for taking steps in a direction we want. When you say it's regime, you're aimed at regime change, that may be read to imply that we never actually want to lift these things, or a lot of them are going to stay in place until Putin's out of office, which is different if you're then a goal of saying, well, we are willing to negotiate lifting some of these things when you stop your offensive in Ukraine. So it implies that there may be a change of policy here. That's what the White House very clearly has tried to cap in here. Um, they're saying that they're not changing a policy here, but their policy was never really clear and that clear in the front end in terms of where these routes of de-escalation existed. Um, so that ambiguity, it really just goes back to a state of ambiguity where Biden's intent and reading into it actually doesn't, you know, still provide some sort of weight in terms of this very ambiguous atmosphere saying, well, when is the United States see it as appropriate to begin ratcheting back? You know, it, so in that sense, I think it's actually a more significant statement than a lot of the administration's defenders are willing to concede. You've seen this like really defensive backlash against the media pushing Putin on this point and pushing the White House on this point. And I think it's a little bit untoward. Like, I actually think that it's a totally fair question to put to them. But now I think the White House has clarified saying we're not changing as a change in policy. This is Biden's view. But Biden giving away this view, like it does kind of complicate 
complicate things. It does put um, a lot more pressure on the possibility that these measures against Russia aren't just about Ukraine or won't end just when the Ukraine offensive ends. And that presents a different set of incentives to Russians, to Russians underneath, underneath Putin, to Putin himself, that may not be productive depending on what our goal is, whether our goals are focused on ending the Ukraine war or something broader in regard to Russia. So I I have a lot of feelings about this, and they're partly conditioned by the fact that a couple weeks before this episode happened, I tweeted, regime change Russia, and caused a bit of a Twitter explosion as a result. I, I think every serious Russia hand and scholar understood exactly what I was talking about, and many of them retweeted it or emphasized it. And every person of the hard left or hard right, notable on Twitter, from Glenn Greenwald and Aaron Mate to Quinta's friend, uh, Rod Dreher. Excuse me, I will not allow this slander to stand. (laughs) Rod Dreher and I are not friends. And Saurabh Amari, you know, claimed uh, this was you know, calling for the U.S. to uh, forcibly engage in regime change with respect to Putin, which, of course, uh, nobody in the context in which I said it could possibly have actually thought that that's what I meant. I think the same thing is true of Biden's comments. Um, He has refused very carefully a lot of opportunities for even modest escalation. You know, he won't give the Ukrainians the arguably defensive weapons that they want in in uh, in certain instances. He's refused a no-fly zone. He's refused, you know, anything that might involve U.S. troops in direct confrontation with uh, Russian troops uh, or airmen. And so the question is, how does a reasonable person rather than a bad faith actor read what he did at the end of the, that speech. And the answer to me was, is, is obvious, which is that he was doing the exact same thing that I was doing, which is saying, you know, it is impossible to imagine civilized countries returning to normal business with Russia while this man is still in power. And that is a policy change, you know, since the policy before that was, you know, just get out and we'll, we'll, you know, by implication, though never stated, will unroll all these things that we did. And this is a way of saying, I, uh, you know, know there's not going to be forcible U.S., you know, led regime change, but, uh, you know, the status quo ante will not return. And by the way, you don't get to do this and remain part, a leader of a part of the civilized community of nations, and you don't get to undo it once you've done it. And I think that was the right thing for him to say. I wish he had said it in a way that was uh, a little bit less amenable to being mischaracterized and to some extent being misunderstood, I think, by European allies. But I will defend it on the merits. And I regret only that the administration has been Uh, so insistent on tying itself in knots and just not saying what is clearly what that meant. Maybe this marks me as not a sophisticated Russia observer, but I will say I certainly have been reading calls, you know, when someone uses the word regime change, that seems to me to mean overthrow by force. And I do think that 
Biden using those words strikes me as an unforced error precisely because, you know, it's not just what we mean when we talk about Putin losing power. It's how the Kremlin interprets that. And my worry is that, you know, we've seen in that initial speech that Putin gave at the end of February, where he just sort of unleashed this tirade of grievances against the the West, against Lenin, this sort of sense that Russia was being looked down upon and needed to reassert itself, that this is really someone who's tied his regime in kind of an existential way to the success of this war. And so making like making that link even tighter seems to me to endanger prospects for ending the war in a way that minimizes the the loss of human life. And I was actually thinking about this because Zelensky gave a very striking interview to a number of Russian speaking as well as uh, Western journalists the other day where he made a, a comment essentially saying, you know, what one way to think about winning is keeping territory. Another way to think about winning is keeping people alive. So that gave me a little bit of hope, perhaps, um, that there really will be a way out of this, that Ukraine is amenable to that. I will say, I mean, I was definitely, you know, sat bolt upright in my chair um, and thought, oh, no, when I saw that Biden had said that. It is notable that, you know, we're a few days on. Notably, the nuclear apocalypse has not yet happened. And uh, we're recording on the morning of Tuesday, March 29th. Um, there was reporting this morning, Eastern Time, that Russia says it will reduce attacks in Kiev and Chernev in the north of Ukraine. It seems to actually be withdrawing forces there, uh, maybe indicating that it's going to concentrate its forces in the in the Donbass, which I think is, you know, could mean a lot of different things. But if they're really walking the walk there, could potentially be a positive development and maybe an indication that they're trying to find their own way out in some way that they can frame this unmitigated catastrophe as a victory. So I don't want to say that, you know, Biden making that comment gave Putin no choice but to nuke everyone and end the world, because that's obviously not true. Putin is an actor here and he has choices. And so far, Russia seems to be, um, at least over the last few days, trying to maybe, maybe, maybe knock on wood back down a little bit. But I do think it emphasizes just how tense the situation is and how difficult it is to sort of interact with with a country whose leader is perhaps not completely in touch with the same reality that everybody else is. Yeah, and I want to add one factor, too, on top of the unforced error uh, analysis that Quinta laid out, which I, I wholeheartedly agree with. And that is the fact that the Biden administration has been incredibly good thus far, much to its credit, about coordinating with and working through Europe on this. And that's incredibly important. The united front of the United States, Europe, and a range of other international allies, but particularly the United States and Europe, has been key to the success of the sanctions strategy, to the military support strategy, to all the whole strategy that, that has been very successful in this conflict, more so than, frankly, I might have expected at the outset. But here is a spot where Biden teams have gotten ahead of those allies and in a way that actually really affects them very directly. This sort of issue is something that you're going to get very different views on within the European community. When you talk about Hungary, Poland, Germany, even, although a little different these days than it was a few years ago, but all countries that have complicated relationships with Russia and probably, I think, are going to be much more hesitant to come out and say something like this, also because of European history around the ideas of things like regime changes make them a little uncomfortable, more so than the American audiences. Uh, you know, I think this strikes me as a moment of Biden really speaking from his heart. He does. He's a guy who 
kind of riffs and expresses things in a certain way. But this is a place where he's unintentionally allowed his personal views to tread into a policy realm that could complicate things here a little bit. Now, I think they've walked about successfully. I don't think it's, you know, a terminal or a huge deal. People are maybe making too big a deal out of it. But that doesn't mean in my mind it wasn't still a bit of an unforced error that would have been better to be avoided at this stage at least. Yeah, so I will uh, just a, a brief response. There are a couple of audiences that this conversation has so far ignored, and I just want to flag them. Uh, one is Russians who aren't Vladimir Putin. And the messages you send to Vladimir Putin are important, but the message that you send to the rest of the country that he leads is also important. When I was a teenager, Ronald Reagan made the uh, the famous evil empire speech and all of my acquaintances, you know, adults, other kids, you know, I was living in, in a center left bubble and the entire world that I lived in, you know, thought the president was going to trigger a nuclear war. The reaction to it was very similar, actually, to the reaction to this. And then I uh, a few years later, I went to college and I started studying Russian with Russian emigres. And the degree of reverence that they had for Reagan because of that speech and the the aid and comfort that that speech gave to people in the Soviet Union was just something that none of the people I had grown up with had any sense of at all. And I had to completely reevaluate the way I understood that previous irresponsible speech by a president that people thought was going to trigger a nuclear war. And the trigger, the, the answer is, you know, the mild response from, from the Russians shows that actually it, you know, they know the difference between presidential rhetoric and, you know, something that actually constitutes a real escalation. And so I think it's a complicated piece of signaling. I don't doubt it has had costs. One of them is that we are discussing the last nine improvised words of the speech rather than the speech itself. And that's, you know, that's a real cost. I don't doubt the friction that it has caused with certain allies, although I think it has helped with certain other allies. Uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement about it in certain parts of Eastern Europe. So I think it's complicated. I do think anytime a U.S. president looks in the face of a complex situation and tells the truth, there's value to that. So this is a very interesting discussion about the merits of what Biden said, right? And and specifically the merits of not calling directly for regime change per se, but making the point that this is not just a matter of one country violating the law. It's a question of one country being run by an authoritarian who cannot be expected to sort of play in the civilized order. And and I don't know, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm still not sure where I come down uh, on the wisdom of what Biden should have said, uh, or, or the the uh, the wisdom of the optimal version of what Biden could have said. To me, I'm just still hung up on this idea that uh, acceptable response to a not terribly formulated, off the cuff statement is to say, no, no, that's just my personal revulsion at Vladimir Putin 
but that doesn't represent the policy of the United States. Like, I, I'm still struggling to figure out what that means exactly. And, and it is notable, right? Unitary executive. Well, but, but it, it's not, it's no, it, it's, it's, it's different than the unitary executive. It's, a wise woman once wrote a piece on lawfare about how the king has two bodies. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? I mean, we, we li- this, was, this was one of the things we, we kept seeing in the Trump years where Trump would say stuff. And it wasn't that... It, it, it wasn't that, you know, there was some other decision maker. It's that Trump wasn't even speaking necessarily for himself as the president. He was speaking for himself as a guy with many, many Twitter followers. And, you know, it raised all these interesting philosophical issues, many raised by our very own Quinta Jurassic, um, many raised uh, in a wonderful article by uh, law professor Daphne Renan called The uh, the President's Two Bodies, right, which uses kind of a similar framework to think through these, through these issues. And one of the things we were promised by Joe Biden, and in his defense, he has mostly given us, was a return to normalcy. And one element of normalcy is that there's not supposed to be this weird daylight between what the president thinks and says as just a person and what the president says as the president. And it just, it just strikes me as notable that this is the line that they're trying to use to walk back this gaffe, because I I don't think that actually makes it that much better. Or to the extent that it makes it better, it raises a whole set of issues that I personally was uh, hoping that we were done with at at the end of the Trump administration. I mean, you're not wrong about that, but on the other hand, I think the this gaffe, if that's what we're we're calling it for purposes of this conversation, was notable precisely because, as Scott says, this is actually one of the few instances in which someone in the U.S. government has put a toe out of line. I mean, Alan, you, I don't need to tell you this. You also wrote a piece in Lawfare about how if Trump were in charge right now, everything would be a complete catastrophe. I mean, there would have been 50 of these kinds of statements before breakfast, right? Every single day on Twitter live. So it's, I mean, the fact that Biden said one thing that we are debating the wisdom of, I mean, on the one hand, I agree with all of your points. On the other hand, he talks a lot. He's not the most coherent person when speaking off the cuff. It was going to happen. So I'm not sure I... I think it's a, a return to the sort of uh, intellectual confusion over <laughs> over the meaning of the president's words under Trump and maybe just a reflection of the fact that the man who's currently the president sometimes mumbles. What I would also add here is I actually think the two bodies problem functions a little bit differently when you're talking about foreign affairs and broad strategic issues like this, because the president's personal role and the president's personal judgment plays a really outsized role in those sorts of decisions because of our legal structures give the president so much authority uh, because of the president's inherent constitutional authority, perhaps, or perhaps congressional delegation, wherever it comes from. What Joe Biden thinks the United States interests are in Europe and in Russia really matters to an outsized degree compared to other policy questions uh, regarding lots of domestic policy issues. The fact that they then try to separate it, I take them to say this is Joe Biden's view, not Joe Biden's considered view as informed by the policy process. I think that's what they're getting at by saying a policy change versus a personal view. But that policy process just feeds up to Joe Biden. I mean, he ultimately make the calls on this, down to the point where the whole economic sanctions elements the United States has put in are all signed by him uh, as executive orders, right? Like, like they are very personalized in the body of the president. So you you can't play that game as effectively here, even if it is just Joe Biden's personal views. Those personal views are inherently relevant to the policy decisions he is going to have to make and is uniquely positioned to have to make individually. And you just can't walk that back fully. Um, and that's why I think that this moment is still going to hang out there as a notable moment in this whole exchange um, and maybe a little bit of a pivot 
in terms of how the United States is is approaching or is seen as approaching this whole issue set. Well, speaking of the two bodies and presidents with ultimate and unreviewable power, uh, Ginny Thomas, the wife of, of Clarence Thomas, sent some text messages in and around January 6th. And now there's been some reporting about said text messages. So it has not been a secret ever that Ginny Thomas, uh, wife of Associate Justice Clarence Thomas, is somebody with very strong political beliefs of her own. And she has carved out a career of her own as sort of a, I think it's fair to say, a right-wing political activist and lobbyist. Um, A lot of people have raised questions about the propriety of that before. Um, So that's sort of the beginning uh, from of what we're now talking about. But this all kicked into, I would say, pretty extreme overdrive in recent weeks. There was reporting from the, the New York Times and the Washington Post documenting particular messages that Thomas sent White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows after the 2020 election in the run-up to January 6th, where she is encouraging him to pursue all kinds of different avenues to overturn the election. She's sending him some, I think it's fair to say, QAnon or QAnon-adjacent conspiracy theories about what really happened during the election. This is also notable because we know that she was present on January 6th at the initial rally. She says she left early uh, because she was cold before things got violent. So this has caused a lot of commotion in a couple different directions. One has to do with the role of Justice Thomas, whether or not this uh, merits recusal, which is up to him. Essentially, there there is nobody else who gets to weigh in on that one. But it does raise a lot of questions about the propriety of the justice hearing cases on January 6th, potentially, that might involve uh, his own wife's uh, relationship with January 6th. It's also created kind of a pickle for the January 6th Select Committee, uh, which the last I checked is asking Ginny Thomas to come in for a voluntary interview. And they recently said they were thinking of subpoenaing her as well if she didn't comply. That raises a lot of tensions because I think it's an interesting example of how maybe the January 6th investigation so far has been able to kind of cabin off Trumpy Republicans from less Trumpy Republicans. And Thomas is sort of a a pivot point there where she's quite far right and very much aligned with Trump, as we've seen in these texts, but is also through her marriage to Justice Thomas, deeply enmeshed in this sort of conservative legal establishment as well. So, Alan, I I know you have thoughts about this. Uh, should, Should Justice Thomas recuse? And is there anything we can do? And why is the answer no? Yeah, I, I I try to underplay the news because it's easy to run around uh, like a headless chicken with your uh, head on fire, even though you're headless. It's it's an impressive uh, feat. But I will say uh, my, my head exploded a little bit when I read this, uh, when I read this story um, for, for a number of reasons. First, the actual contents of the text messages are just, they're insane, right? They are, and I think we should not, um, we should not overlook this point, right? The actual substance of what Ginny Thomas thinks is completely bananas. And the fact that this has clearly reached the highest, I mean, highest, highest elite levels of Republican, not just political thought, but the kind of Republican political legal establishment is to me 
the the most horrifying part of this, right? Now, obviously, we knew that in a sense, right? You know, because we have Eastman, and we have Clark, right? I mean, we, we have these people who are otherwise theoretically serious legal figures believing all this nonsense. And so uh, in some sense, maybe it shouldn't be surprised, but it's just, it is very striking that the hyper-engaged, exceptionally credentialed elite, you know, spouse of a Supreme Court justice is thinking essentially the political equivalent of flat earth conspiracy. I mean, there's just no other way of describing it. So that's one thing that's just notable. There's nothing to do about that per se, but it is depressing. You know, the, the real question, I think, or one of the questions um, is obviously about the question of whether Justice Thomas should have recused. So this is an interesting, interesting issue. And there are, I think, no super obvious answers. Now, I generally am skeptical of Supreme Court justices recusing themselves. Um, obviously, there are situations where they'd have to, right, where like literally a family member is part of the case before them. But as a general matter, I think we are too quick to call for recusal of Supreme Court justices. I think that's true on the right. I think that's true on the left, right? There are calls for justice, or sorry, uh, presumably soon to be justice, uh, Ketanji uh, Brown-Jackson to recuse from the upcoming um, Harvard Affirmative Action case because she was on the, uh, or she is, or was at least on the Harvard Board of Overseers. She's actually said she will recuse. I'm actually convinced that's the right answer. You know, the, the Supreme Court is kind of a court, but mostly it's just like a third house of Congress that rules on the nation's most pressing and sensitive policy issues. The law lords. Yeah, ex- they, that's exactly what they are, right? Uh, um, you know, and as a law professor that teaches con law every year to a bunch of uh, uh, fall semester 1Ls, right, that, that is increasingly the conclusion I'm coming to on the really high profile cases. And so to me, what that means is that recusal is just, it's not appropriate because the reason we have elections and elections have consequences, and that includes who we appoint to the Supreme Court, is that for for better or for worse, they're there to decide on the high profile policy questions. And just as we don't expect the president to recuse, right, um, just because he has some personal stake uh, potentially in a matter, we don't expect congressmen to recuse. I don't think we should respect uh, expect Supreme Court justices to recuse. Now, obviously, there are exceptions where you have actual an actual financial conflict, right, or you literally have a spouse there. But as a general matter, I'm I'm skeptical of of recusal just to preserve the idea of judicial integrity because I think that is based on a false premise of what integrity means on the Supreme Court. That being said, <laughs> uh, that being said, I don't see a way that Justice Thomas can avoid recusal on matters going forward regarding January 6th, not just because of the appearance here, but because of the actual fact that it does seem that his wife's text messages and other communications and who knows what else are potentially still in the works, right? If she texted Mark Meadows, presumably she texted a bunch of other people who might go before the January 6th committee. And in addition, because the January 6th committee may want to speak to her, any rulings on the January 6th committee's overall powers obviously have an implication. Now, Quinta, you're right. There's no way to force Justice Thomas to recuse himself. In fact, the Supreme Court is not bound by the uh, otherwise applicable federal code of judicial ethics, though they are bound by this, the, the federal statute that requires recusal in some circumstances. But again, who's going to decide on, on that? Obviously, the Supreme Court itself. Now, there, you know, the ultimate remedy, of course, is always impeachment. And in fact, impeachment in American history has largely been used uh, for judges. But I don't think anyone uh, wants that to happen uh, quite yet. I think the real question to me is whether Justice Thomas should have recused himself earlier, the first time the January 6th litigation came to the Supreme Court. I can see arguments on both sides, but that's the past. I think the most important thing is the future. And I just don't see a way in which he can ethically or honorably avoid recusal on this issue. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah, so I want to approach this from a very different angle, which is that the Clarence Thomas side of this doesn't matter very much because the decision in which he took part was an eight to one decision. Had he been recused, it would have been an eight to zero decision. Um, So to the extent that he was inappropriately, knowingly inappropriately, as opposed to accidentally inappropriately sitting on a case. Uh, That's the case of the January 6th committee's efforts to get National Archive documents that, by the way, did not include these text messages. So, uh, you know, to the extent that he was inappropriately, intentionally inappropriately sitting on a case in which he knew his wife might have a sort of uh, theoretical interest, although not or, or her, perhaps not her direct text messages at issue, I think it's kind of harmless error. You know, it's sort of a, uh, so something happened with an eight to one vote instead of an eight to zero vote. I'm not terribly fussed about that. I think there are two major issues here. The first is that I'm worried about Jimmy Thomas. I, I think, you know, this, people are not discussing this in a mental health context and we have a justice of the Supreme Court has a wife who is seriously mentally ill. And, you know, as somebody who has uh, a fair bit of mental illness in my family, I actually feel for him about that. And, and I, I think that's a, uh, that's a very hard thing to deal with. And I guarantee you that the woman who is sending text messages like this to the White House chief of staff in the middle of the night is not exhibiting totally normal behavior in other areas. I, I don't want to speculate about it, but I, I just, those are not the text messages of a normal, healthy person. So, and that I'm, I, I have concerns for him, uh, you know, about that as just like somebody who has to manage that on a day-to-day basis. The, the, the other side of it uh, is that I do think it, it, you know, on future recusal issues, I do think because he presumably does not know the scope of her activities in this regard. And he probably therefore has to, as a precautionary matter, recused in any litigation involving the January 6th committee, as well as any litigation 
in any criminal case involving January 6th that does or might involve her behavior. And I, I think that's, you know, I don't see how he avoids doing that. I do think the glee which with which people are responding to you know him about this uh, and the assumption that he's done something wrong is frankly unseemly and you know it, and i also think frankly that I, there's probably more to this story than is out um, and i i would hope people would think about it with a little bit more compassion than people are currently talking about it yeah, I want to build off that last point, Ben, because I, I I think you are right that it's too easy to jump in and assume Justice Thomas did something consciously wrong here. Um, I will say Clarence Thomas is not somebody I agree with at all, uh, but somebody I have I'm very intrigued by and has always struck me, having spent actually a fair amount of time for relating to certain work, digging into a lot of his opinions as somebody who's got a very the very strong view about how the law works and actually sticks by it in a very principled way. I think it's kind of a wacky view, but he's fairly consistent on that regard, arguably a lot more so than a lot of other Supreme Court justices and judges. Um, and I think it just reflects that he's 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 actually kind of a principled guy. Um, now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have limits, maybe when it comes to his wife in particular, I, I get that. But uh, I think that it's too easy to just assume this guy's a bad moral actor in this case, even if we disagree with him ad- adamantly. But what I will say here is we also can't rule it out. There's a big information deficit here. And that information deficit exists because we have this presumption of there being this huge zone of discretion that every judge has to get, not just Supreme Court justice, but some extent every judge has to get around their work, right? Lower judges have some consequences for recusal. Um, they have ethics rules. But even those, frankly, rules are like not very reliably enforced um, that effectively, except by self-enforcement. And this is all a kind of assumption about how courts and judges should work that isn't actually built into the Constitution. Um, Judges have insulation because they have lifetime appointments, but there's nothing that says like these sorts of rules about recusal have to be left entirely to judges or justices' discretion. And, you know, this may be a case that seems so clear that there's a personal interest here that it drives a little bit of inquiry. And I think it'd be entirely appropriate, frankly, for Congress to take an interest in this and start saying, hey, we need to actually know more about what this justice knew about this moment, because we need to evaluate whether our rules, which give strong deference to the judiciary on recusal, are adequate. We have a strong legislative purpose here, which is to reconsider how we give how much authority we give to the courts to run their own affairs. We've seen this really become an issue in other contexts, contexts about you know abusive environments and sexual harassment and horrible treatment by judges to their law clerks in chambers that have come to uh, light with both conservative and liberal ju- judges, really horrible stories that, frankly, the judiciary has not responded to adequately, um, and that there are legislative solutions being put forward in Congress, but that don't seem to be going anywhere yet, although I'm so optimistic that maybe they will get somewhere. But this fits into that same bucket to say, like, maybe the courts need to, we need to reconsider the amount of discretion given to the courts, or maybe the courts at least need to know that there is accountability at the end of the day to Congress and that Congress will take that seriously. And that might drive some better behavior. I mean, there is always accountability through the impeachment process, ultimately. I mean, obviously, the problem is that that's an incredibly radical form of accountability and you want to have some gradations. And the the, the problem of Article Three life tenure is that you know, it's often interpreted as impeachment or nothing. And that obviously doesn't uh, provide any good nuanced options. The thing I wanted to quickly say is, you know, I do think this issue, abstracting from the specifics here, does put into sharp relief 
the complexities that uh, happen with regard to judges and justices and their spouses. You know, there, there was for a long time, I think, a soft norm, right, that um, the only, uh, you know, the, that, that if you were a judge, that was the entire professional, essentially, um, activity of your, uh, you know, nuclear family, right, minus adult uh, uh, children. And obviously, that had a lot of gender components to it, right? Because for a long, long time, judges were all men, right? And and for a long time, the 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 you know, wife of a judge probably wouldn't be working necessarily. And obviously that has changed in a number of ways, um, right? Now you have judges, male judges have, uh, you know, lots of professional spouses, right? You have all these power couples, you have lots of female judges, right? Whose uh, male spouses might not want, uh, might might want to have their own uh, careers in the law. Not to mention that you have, you know, gay judges as well, right? So, you know, all of this has changed very much for the better, but it does uh, raise sort of questions of what you do with that, right? There on Twitter was going around, you know, in the last couple of days, um, some anecdote about Chief Justice uh, John Roberts's wife, uh, Jane Roberts, contrasting, uh, you know, her behavior with Ginny Thomas's. I think apparently at the State of the Union, someone asked her some totally innocuous question about the Supreme Court and her response was, it'd be very inappropriate for me to respond to that. And like, that's great and all, and that's totally fine choice, but we don't want to require the spouses of justices to not have their own, you know, active professional identities. You know, a famous example of this is, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, uh, Marty Ginsburg, who was a very famous tax lawyer. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not recuse herself from tax cases for that uh, reason. And yet at the same time, if you do have a spouse who is engaged not just in the law, but in kind of partisan politics, that raises its own concerns. I don't think there's a kind of obvious answer here, but I think it does show how what is otherwise a very salutary development, which is that you have two professional couples now at the highest levels of law and government, can raise some really tricky issues uh, of, of judicial ethics and judicial recusal. Although Marty Ginsburg, I think, is worth saying, I think took a teaching position when Ginsburg ascended to the court, which is one way of of eliminating that potential conflict of interest. I mean, look, it's you're you're not wrong. And one can only assume that this is what Senator Josh Hawley was referencing when he said that uh, inquiring into Ginny Thomas's texts was misogynistic. Uh, I, you know, as as a woman, I, I can only speculate what he was thinking. I, I do think it's worth emphasizing that this is also happening at a time when public confidence in the Supreme Court is lower than it has been historically when the court is being seen as increasingly politicized, especially the conservative majority on the court. And so I do think I I worry about what happens if, say, Justice Thomas does not recuse and does end up ruling in January 6 related cases, that that will add to the public perception that this is not a group of unbiased justices, uh, but rather a political body. Whether or not you agree with that assessment is one thing, but I do think it's worth underlining that this seems like it it will necessarily augment that perception if it's not handled extremely delicately by the court. And frankly, I don't have any expectation at this point that it will be. I would just like to say that the nature of life tenure makes the specific issue an irresolvable one. Uh, There is no way that Congress is going to pass a meaningfully enforceable code applicable to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court would uh, retroactively apply to deal with the Ginny Thomas situation. Uh, I think the much more likely resolution involves a quiet conversation between the Chief Justice 
and Clarence Thomas of the sort that have happened in the past about Ginny Thomas's uh, antics. And, you know, you can put that on the long list of the ways in which being a Supreme Court justice means never having to say you're sorry. Well, speaking about accountability for some senior folks in government, let us return once again to the tale of our former president, one Donald J. Trump, who over recent weeks has found himself in the midst of a number of legal actions um, that have come to a bit of a fore in the just the last 24 or 48 hours, so just last 24 hours, I believe, uh, 48 hours when you're listening to this, um, we've seen a ruling come from a federal district court in California suggesting in the context of a ruling about attorney-client privilege, so not in the context of what actually establishes certainly evidence beyond a, a reasonable doubt or probable cause, such as in the criminal context, but nonetheless concluded that there was sufficient evidence to conclude that it was uh, probable that President Trump may have engaged in unlawful conduct with one John Eastman um, so as to pierce the attorney-client privilege that may or may not have existed between them, compelling Eastman to uh, disclose certain documents January 6th committee. We also saw a few days before that statements by a recently departed former district attorney in New York saying that he felt there was more than enough criminal evidence to bring charges against Donald Trump and the Trump organization um, relating to their business practices and accusing the new uh, district attorney there of killing the case uh, after having replaced his predecessor. These are all big statements about the fact that there is evidence out there that numerous people feel is sufficient to not only initiate an investigation, but at least arguably in the view of the DA, at least, uh, to bring charges against Donald Trump. But we're in a moment where it's not clear there are really substantial investigations actually looking into Trump himself. The Justice Department has been very mum about the issue in both New York and uh, state proceedings, while at one point there were some in play that seemed to be heading that direction, now seem to have ground to a halt, although I think nominally some of them are still proceeding. But it's not clear whether they're going to lead to any actual charges in the end, which all leads us to the big question we've considered here on Rational Security a number of times, which is that is anything ever going to hold Donald Trump accountable or pose a credible threat of holding Donald Trump or future presidents accountable for conduct of the type that he's accused of undertaking and appears to be credibly believed to have undertaken uh, on and about January 6th and previously in regards to other conduct uh, that may or may not have been in compliance with the law? Ben, why don't I hand it over to you first to hear takes and views on these sorts of issues as somebody who's done a lot of thinking and writing about them and I know is working on a p- related piece as we speak. Yeah, so I guess let me start by saying that the opinion on Monday by uh, Judge David Carter of the District Court in Southern California, uh, or Central California, is the single most damning document ever written in the history of the United States presidency about the conduct of its occupant. There's nothing like it from Watergate. There is nothing like it from any of the independent counsel investigations of Iran-Contra or the Starr investigation. You know, nobody, there's no single document that describes the predations of Andrew Jackson or the failures of James Buchanan in a comparable fashion. If you read nothing else about Donald Trump in your life, read the first nine pages of this document, which is just the factual summary of what happened between 
the election of Joe Biden and the certification of his election and the operational activity of Donald Trump and John Eastman to corruptly seize power in the face of an adverse election uh, using a variety of extra constitutional means up to and including the deployment of physical violence against a coordinate branch of government. And so I actually think the opinion is breathtaking, less because of the legal analysis in it, which is fine, than just because of the use of record evidence to tell the story of Donald Trump. All that said, I I don't think the criminal process is likely to touch Donald Trump for activity that he uh, engaged in while he was president. I could be wrong about that, particularly with respect to Georgia, where I where I do think there is a active and serious uh, investigation by the Fulton County DA, who seems very serious about it. And you know, would I be completely surprised to be wrong somewhere else? No. Uh, that said, it is hard to prosecute a president for things the president did while in office, and the Justice Department and a variety of other politically accountable actors, including the uh, DA in the new DA in New York, are appropriately careful about making the attempt. Is that frustrating? Yes. Uh, Do I hate it? Yes. Do I have bloodlust in my heart for the indictment of Donald Trump? Absolutely. If I were Merrick Garland's counselor, would I tell him he is wrong to behave that way? Absolutely not. Because the last thing you want to do is bring a case and then not be able to sustain it. And so I I just, I want to say, and I'll stop here. The right way to do these things is exactly what Judge Carter did the other day, which is to keep your powder dry until you can deliver a bomb that will be remembered for a very long time. I want to point to a particular aspect of the Carter opinion that I think is worth paying attention to, which is, uh, I believe, the very last paragraph where he says, and I'll just read some of it, more than a year after the attack on our Capitol, the public is still searching for accountability. This case cannot provide it. The court is tasked only with deciding a dispute over a handful of emails. This is not a criminal prosecution. This is not even a civil liability suit. At most, this case is a warning about the dangers of legal theories gone wrong, the powerful abusing public platforms, and the desperation to win at all costs. If Dr. Eastman and President Trump's plan had worked, it would have permanently ended the peaceful transition of power, undermining American democracy and the Constitution. If the country does not commit to investigating and pursuing accountability for those responsible, the court fears January 6th will repeat itself. So that's a very interesting statement on a number of levels because Judge Carter is essentially saying, look, there is a limited amount that I can do here. You need to pursue accountability in other avenues. Which avenues, I wonder? It's a particularly interesting thing to write in a lawsuit that involves a select committee litigating to 
access material that is relevant to its congressional investigation of what happened on January 6th. So that reads to me as if the judge is saying we need the Justice Department to step in here. Now, if I put on my Article 1 hat, I can say that's frankly a bit insulting to Congress. It kind of suggests that their investigation isn't like a real investigation. Um, But I also think it, it speaks to keeping in mind everything that Ben says, which I'm extremely sympathetic to, the kind of hot potato element of Trump accountability, where no one institution is actually perfectly suited to doing this. And that's because the institution that is suited to doing this is the public. And unfortunately, because of the way that the American electoral system is set up, we are not going to get a full-scale public repudiation of Trump. So instead, you end up with this bizarre situation where you know political and governmental institutions are kind of chucking a hot potato back and forth at one another from you know the Justice Department to the special counsel to Congress to Congress again. Now we go to the select committee. You know, now we go to the Justice Department and nobody wants to take it on. And there are good reasons for that, as Ben says. But I worry that you kind of end up in this paradoxical situation where you have, I agree, an incredibly powerful statement by Judge Carter about Trump's actions here that ends with a statement saying, I can't give you accountability. Go out and get it. And he doesn't say where or how. You know, I'll say I, I, I do. I personally find that last paragraph kind of stirring, but I think that's where the judge kind of let wet his powder a little bit, you know, in a way that I always worry you see judges dipping into this because these are issues of national significance. They're issues that lots of people, including us, want to and we have the opportunity to comment on to various extents. They obviously implicate a lot of le- important legal questions, but I'm not sure it always serves judges particularly when you're talking about the broader political optics around investigating the president to the extent that you need to try and drain anything assembling any sort of partisan inclination out of it to have any hope of getting credibility um, with people more on a political spectrum closer to former President Trump. And even then, you may not be able to. So maybe it's a maybe it's a bit of a moot exercise. But ideally, like if you could get those people, you would probably want to be as minimally partisan or ideological as possible, that we see judges keep dipping into this. Otherwise, I think the opinion actually was quite impressive for the reasons Ben noted. Um, but I at that last paragraph, I think just got he got a little over his skis in framing things that way, because that's actually just not a judge's job. Now, judges do it routinely, um, which is that they situate a particular decision in a broader political context, and they use that as an opportunity to basically express views. But that's, I think it's always kind of problematic behavior. It's not something I particularly like here. Yeah, I just want to add a a small point, which is, I, I think Ben is ultimately right that this decision as striking as it is and as damning um, as, as it is, and I think Ben describes that quite accurately, does not meaningfully increase the probability that Trump will be like criminally indicted by the Justice Department for this. But I, I do think it it has to put some pressure on Merrick Garland. I, I assume it just it makes his day that much worse because, um, you know, you have a sitting federal judge say that it is more likely than not um, that the president committed a very serious crime. So essentially, you have the sitting judge saying that there is more than enough predication to start a uh, investigation, right? You know, preponderance of the evidence is more likely than not. That's much higher than probable cause. And even probable cause is not probably is not required to start an investigation. So I do think it, it adds, or I'm curious to see in what ways it will add to the pressure, whether internally within the Justice Department or more likely from the Democrats in Congress on Attorney General Garland to 
investigate the president or clarify whether there is an investigation of the president. You know, Ben and Quinta have written about this odd silence from uh, Merrick Garland on 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 this point. But I, I do think in that way, it might have some um, concrete consequences. I would also just distinguish between the question of whether there's an investigation of the former president and the question of whether there is uh, an investigation of John Eastman. There are some legal barriers to potentially indicting the president on this matter, which I will have fleshed out in a lawfare post by the time this episode goes live. There are none of those barriers apply to an investigation of John Eastman. And so I I do think there's a important question, uh, like to the extent there is not an open investigation of John Eastman after this opinion, that is very hard to understand in my view. Well, unfortunately, we will have to leave the conversation there for today because we are out of time, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with object lessons to ponder over the week to come until we speak to you next. Alan, why don't I hand it over to you for our first object lesson? I think that this may be my weirdest object lesson. It, it is, I don't even know how to describe it. It is a sizzle reel, for lack of a better term, of North Korea's most recent intercontinental ballistic missile. This is a video that the North Korean government released this week. It's been It's been viral on North Korean television to the extent that you can have virality in a totalitarian state. Uh, and it, it, it shows the, uh, a new ICBM that uh, North Korea tested that landed at the Sea of Japan, but that is thought to be able to reach the United States, right, with, with nuclear weapons, which ordinarily would be a really disturbing thing to watch. And it is quite disturbing for those reasons. But the video is also one of the funniest things I've seen in an incredibly long time, because it's 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 like... It's, it's an attempt by someone who clearly has no idea what cool is to make a really cool video of Kim Jong-un, who's like doing a lot of weird pointing and there are a lot of like funny sh- like cut shots and he's wearing this leather jacket. And, and so you're watching this video about something that's not funny at all, right? Something that like, you know, before three weeks ago was going to be the likeliest start of World War III and still could start World War III one of these days. But you're giggling the entire time. And it's this truly profoundly strange juxtaposition. Um, it, 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 is, it, is, it is an object lesson that has reached, for me, the level of a, of a moment of zen, uh, for those of you who uh, remember those from uh, John Stewart's Daily Show. So it's worth watching. It's two and a half minutes. It is, it is the funniest, disturbing thing I've seen in a very, very long time. At no point did he ride in or out on a white horse, though, so therefore making it a, at best, a much more professional production than some other North Korean propaganda videos we've seen. I, I, I think the missile is like the allegorical white horse here. I, I think that's, I think that's, the, uh, that's the, the message. Like in Dr. Strangelove. Exactly. If they get him riding one of those missiles in the next one, that's where we need to go. That's like the next inevitable stop. Uh, well, thank you, Alan. Quinto, what is your object lesson for us this week? Well, speaking of uh, camp, I have something that also fills that description. I'm on a cultural recommendations roll. Last week, I did a movie. This week, I'm going to do a TV show. It is a show on HBO that is called Our Flag Means Death. It is by uh, Taika Waititi uh, of New Zealand. And it is a wacky pirate adventure that is based on apparently a real guy who was a wealthy landowner in the Caribbean and decided that he was going to become a pirate, even though he didn't know how to do it. It is delightful. I think it goes from 
like wacky to wacky and increasingly heartfelt over the course of the season. Um, I watched the whole thing in like two days um, and it made me very happy. And I think there is a, a shortage of, of media to, you know, lift ourselves up, uh, give us some joy in this very, very bleak time. So highly recommended uh, plugging it because I hadn't seen it like anywhere um, until a few days ago. So, and I think that uh, more people should know about it. And also HBO, I will riot if there is not a season two. That's an excellent recommendation. And if you, if you folks have not seen uh, the Taika Waititi's prior vampire effort, which is the, what we do in the shadows documentary from like seven or eight years ago. Absolutely now. incredible. Incredible. The TV show based off it isn't bad either, but not quite as good as the movie. But it is, it's, I feel like his take on pirates is going to be so perfect. Not just that. I mean, his, his great masterpiece is uh, Jojo Rabbit. In, in <laughs> a controversial pick, Alan. Oh my God. No, in a, a controversial, Paris controversial, one of the best movies and most effective movies for a long time, in which he plays uh, Adolf Hitler as the imaginary friend of a six-year-old boy growing up in Nazi Germany, which does not sound like the most promising premise for a movie, but is truly an exceptional film. Very much worth watching. I have not seen it. I'll have to check that out. It's amazingly good. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am finally unveiling the secret that's been bothering so many rational security listeners for the last several months. You may remember that during our special holiday episode, I advertised the fact that I got a special kitchen unitasker, something that I usually and adamantly opposed to, but was very excited to receive this particular unitasker for Christmas uh, that year. But I did not unveil what it was because it was not yet the season to use it. Well, the season is upon us. The produce for which it is designed is back in store and I present to you the most wonderful unitasker I've ever encountered and the only one I approve of, which I'm holding up to the screen. Any of you guys know what this is? That's a pineapple something, right? It's a pineapple core. Exactly. Yeah. It's amazing. I love fresh pineapple. My little baby loves fresh pineapple, but pineapples are just the worst thing to have to cut up in the world. It's like a disaster. You have to pick out all the little spines for little baby, sensitive baby mouths. It's really a disaster. I got this thing. You just shove it down the middle, pull the middle right out. It's done in like 15 seconds. It's freaking amazing. And I'm shocked by how effective it was. It makes it kind of a mess, but it's amazing. Um, so I highly recommend it for people. And you end up with like the little extra skin with like a little extra meat on the inside, which you can eat with a spoon as like a little chef's treat. Or alternative, you can do what I am planning to do, which I'm excited about, which is you can cut it up and ferment it and turn it into tapache, uh, which is like a pineapple-based kind of fermented drink. I think is I think from Mexico. I could be wrong, but I believe so. So I'm excited about that coming out. Um, so get ready for some pineapple-themed uh, recipes and cocktail drinks to come, Rational Security listeners, uh, as the more months come upon us. Uh, Scott, I approve of your object lesson. I mean, it's no Spätzle maker, but it's it's good. My question is does it does it also does it also handle cutting like the rind off the pineapple? Because it, it does the core, but you still have to do the rind yourself, right? No, it like goes. You literally like screw it in, and you end up with like little rings of pineapple, exactly the diameter of this thing. That's what's amazing, and a little meat gets left around the outside edge. But again, Chef Street, you know, or that is, fermentation. That stock. is mind blowing. That's cool. Highly recommend. High recommend. Only Unitasker. I will. I will highly recommend. Well, Ben, why don't you bring us home? Well, continuing your ongoing theme of object lessons that are obscure foreign shows, uh, I would like to recommend the Finnish police procedural Deadwind. Such a wittest thing to recommend, a Finnish <laughs> police procedural. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of police procedurals, 
I am fascinated by this one largely because the uh, woman who plays the lead in it, uh, who is a, a Finnish homicide detective who has just uh, been living in Hamburg where her husband died and she has come back to Helsinki with a small child and his uh, very surly near adult daughter who uh, really doesn't want to come back to Helsinki uh, and is not her daughter and uh, is trying to manage a really difficult family situation post-spousal death while investigating a completely bizarre uh, murder of the type that does not, in fact, take place in Helsinki, Finland. There are some writing glitches in, in the thing. It is a spectacular acting performance, and no, I'm not going to try to pronounce her name. And her partner, who you keep waiting for them to get shipped, and they don't, uh, which is one of the actual uh, attractive things about they have a you know, purely, these two very beautiful Scandinavian people have this purely professional relationship in which he sometimes takes care of her kids and he's got a kind of fucked up life of him, of his own, but there's, you know, there's just no, the, the chemistry isn't between them, so it just doesn't happen. Uh, and they investigate murders together. It is a very impressive ensemble acting project and uh, really makes me love the Finnish language. Well, that sounds amazing. And also thrilled that it worked shipped into your relationships. Our millennial listeners will fully understand you as a definitively millennial term. I had no idea. What is that? I, it took me like three cents to figure oh, out what Alan. he meant. You got to get this on the is, internet, this buddy. Requires, this requires, there's a lengthy explanation here. Oh, We're not going to burden our listeners with right. this. This will, this, will be a, this will be a Patreon exclusive. Uh, Quinta teaches me millennial slang. First, you have to watch Our Flag Means Death. I am so far ahead of you guys in slang because I am a parent of recent teenagers. And so I, I know slang that you guys have never heard of, you mere millennials. <laughs> That's a totally fair point. I believe that's probably correct, sadly. Sad but true. Then you've been missed on the show. Come back more often. Absolutely. Well, for better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our special series on the response to the January 6th insurrection, The Aftermath. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our guest, Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.